Hello, everyone. My name is David Shulman. I have the privilege of being the president of the American College of Chess Physicians for 2022. And I'm joined today by some of the leadership for the American Board of Internal Medicine as we try to learn a little bit more about some of their changes to the certification process, the reasoning behind it, and how it might affect uh, folks who are looking to both certify and recertify. Uh, I'll introduce the uh, folks by name and then let them tell you a little bit about themselves before we get started. Uh, first, I'm joined by Dr. Lorna Lin. Thanks so much for having us and giving us a chance to share some of what's been going on at ABIM. Um, I am a board certified internist. I am the vice president for medical education research at ABIM. And I also have the privilege of serving as the executive sponsor for the pulmonary and the critical care medicine boards. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lin. And then uh, someone I also know fairly well through years of working together with her, although I've since lost the privilege of doing so, Dr. Lin Tanui. Uh, thanks, David. My name is Lynn Tanoe. I'm the current chair of the ABIM Pulmonary Disease Board. Um, I'm a lifelong member of CHEST and a great supporter of this wonderful organization. Uh, I am on faculty at Yale School of Medicine in the section of pulmonary uh, critical care and sleep medicine. And I am the, um, I'm a former chair of the Pulmonary Disease ABIM Examination Committee. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining us and we'll, we'll keep it very conversational. What I'd like to start with is something that I've noticed in a positive way over the last several iterations. I've now had the privilege of going through the certification and recertification process a total of three times for multiple boards. And one of the things that I've noticed is I feel like the uh, the board, American Board of Internal Medicine, has made a concerted effort to focus a little less on the esoterica and a little more on the a little more on the practical aspects of what we do. Um, can you speak? Can one of you speak briefly at all to just sort of the process of question writing and reviewing that's helped us to get to this point? Sure, I'll take that question. Um, a lot of effort goes into writing questions for the examination. Now, both the uh, traditional tenure examination as well as the longitudinal knowledge assessment um, so that the questions are relevant, uh, they're up to date, they're not confusing and they're not esoteric. Uh, there is a blueprint that informs the content and that's based on surveys of uh, the diplomat community. And when you combine pulmonary and critical care medicine, which are our disciplines, um, that's 15,000 people. And so the constitution of our practices and what we see really informs that blueprint, which is on the ABIM uh, website. Um, having spent uh, a bunch of years on the examination committee, uh, a question is written by a member of that committee and then brought to the rest of the committee. There's content expertise in all of the various um, domains of the blueprint and the other people on the examination committee. And there are now two of those committees which are substantially larger than they used to be. They're vetted by the other people. So my specialty happens to be thoracic oncology and I'm really then the sounding board for somebody who is writing um, questions uh, in sleep medicine or interstitial lung diseases or obstructive airways diseases. And so we want the questions to be fair and they go through a tremendous vetting process uh, before they are tested. And they're tested in the diplomat community on the examinations, um, but they don't count before they've been absolutely finally vetted. 
And so that um, the bottom line is by the time a question gets to an examination, it's been through a lot of um, uh, processes uh, to make sure that it is fit to be there. And then depending on how that question performs on the test in a year when it doesn't count. So that first year, it doesn't count towards the score of the uh, examinee. Um, will determine whether it stays in the test then in the future as a real question. And so the process of a single item getting to count on an examination is a really rigorous one, one that I really wasn't aware of before I joined the examination committee. And I was really impressed actually at, and still am, at um, the rigor that anything on the exam is put through before it counts. I would just like to add to that, that um, as Lynn said, the, the group of individuals who are responsible for creating the items that appear on our assessments has grown in recent years. So it's, it's more diverse. We think it's more representative of the discipline as a whole. And we think that helps in making sure there isn't something that is really too esoteric to, um, to be appropriate for the vast majority of people in a discipline to be asked about. We also ask for feedback at the end of the traditional long form exam, where we ask if, if the person who just took the exam thinks it was a fair assessment of knowledge in the field. Those results are taken very seriously by those who write the items, by those who approve them, and by the pulmonary disease board that Lynn shares. The, I know the board will look at those, um, those statistics every spring. And if there's any falling off in terms of people are saying, yeah, I don't know if this was completely fair, that's taken very seriously. And we go and we think about the blueprint and how to improve in that. So, so what I'm hearing is when I'm sitting for the exam, if I see a question that potentially is a little confusing or frustrating, it's conceivable that's the first time it's being vetted and it may actually not contribute meaningfully to my score. Uh, it's, it's just out there in the wild for assessment and will only get accepted into the scoring process if it does well enough through the first pass of testing. That's, that's absolutely correct. So thank you. Um, before we jump into the new processes you wanna, uh, that, that we want to speak about a little bit more in depth, I'd like to talk a little bit about certification versus recertification. Uh, again, one of the things that happened this past go around for me in recertification is for the first time I had access to UpToDate, um, which I will admit I probably used uh, a little less than I thought I would because time doesn't really allow for active use of UpToDate for many of the questions, but it was certainly useful and very consistent with the way we practice medicine. Um, I am also aware that UpToDate is not, I believe, part of the process for initial certification. And I was wondering what the thought process behind that was, since clearly young learners are just as likely, if not more likely to use UpToDate than old fogies like myself. So Lorna, I think we can share the answer to this one. The initial certification is really a landmark uh, at the end of the training. And the mastery of that body of knowledge um, is what will take you through the exam. And the vast majority, more than 95% of the uh, examinees, the first time takers will pass that examination the first time around. And so I think that um, the use of other resources at that point in time is probably not necessary those trainees are primed to take that examination if they've completed the fellowship. I think the lifelong learning piece 
which we do then with resources like UpToDate on a you know, daily basis, is really most relevant to those of us who are recertifying. It doesn't mean that those young learners aren't using those resources also, but I certainly tell my trainees to go back to the primary sources. That's where your learning should be at this stage of your uh, career. Lorna, I'll let you add to that. Yeah, I would just add that as, as Lynn was saying, the initial certification exam is meant to assure patients that this person who is newly certified in pulmonary disease is ready for independent practice. And taking that exam, being able to pass it on their own without outside resources is part of that. For maintenance of certification, I agree 100% with what Lynn said. Over time, many people focus on certain areas within pulmonary disease for their careers. Um, I, I should have mentioned in introducing myself that I'm married to a, a guy who's certified in pulmonary disease and critical care medicine. He focuses on pulmonary vascular disease and he shudders a little bit every time he's up for an exam because he has to review sleep medicine and that's not something he's ever done. So I'm sure he looks to up to date for that when he's sitting for the exam. Have him call me, I can help him with the sleep medicine <laughs> questions. Um, so let's let's spin a little bit to the transition. So you'd mentioned um, one or both of you had mentioned the longitudinal knowledge assessment. It's one of a, a couple of different things that are changing. So can one or both of you speak a little bit to the uh, transitions that are currently ongoing in the ABIM certification recertification process and maybe summarize it for the, our listeners and watchers? So Lynn, how about I start with this and you can chime in. Um, that is absolutely true, David. We have been working really hard and we're really proud of what we have added to the choices that are available to diplomats for maintaining their certification. But I do want to note that the core of the MOC program hasn't changed. What MOC is, is a periodic assessment together with earning 100 MOC points every five years. And that's been what we've had in place since 2015. For people who haven't been engaged with us for a while, seeing the changes that, you know, hearing a little bit about it may be confusing, but if you keep that in mind, periodic assessment and 100 MOC points every five years, maybe it will seem a little less complicated. Anybody who wonders where they are can simply sign into their ABIM physician portal, check to see what's coming up for them, what they might have due, whether it's some points or maybe they need to pay their, their fee to ABIM, which, um, is something that, that we, we do need to ask you to do. We send out reminder emails, but that physician portal is where you'll always find the most correct and up-to-date information. So having said that, there have been some changes that we think of as improvements over time. Um, and that's the how, but the why is really the same. And the why is important, I think, for everyone to think about. Not only does knowledge decay over time, but Knowledge changes over time, but we are here just about to start 2023. Three years ago, we weren't talking about COVID. You know, think of what an enormous change that has been in this field and in many others. So our MOC program provides a way that physicians can check and see if they're staying current enough in the discipline. And it also enables patients and the public to be reassured that the physician they're seeing is current in the knowledge that, that they're seeking out care for. I also want to say that the changes that we've made have really been made in response to the community and together with the physician community. 
We heard that people wanted more flexibility in how they maintained their certification. We heard from some people that the long form exam every 10 years was tremendously stressful and they wanted something different. They didn't want to have to go to a test center. They wanted to be able to do it on their own time, on their own schedule. And we believe that we have achieved that with the longitudinal knowledge assessment. So Lynn, is there anything you want to add at this point? So I think the point about flexibility and choice is really important uh, in those of us who are in pulmonary medicine are also boarded often in internal medicine and most often in critical care. And David, I suspect you're quadruple boarded with sleep. Not, not, yeah, sleep. not anymore. I let that IM one elapse, Lynn. So maybe there's a way back in for you if you would like, um, because you can get back in with the LKA. And actually, I'm planning on doing that because um, I have a lifetime IM certi certificate, but I wonder if I could pass the tenure, but I would love to take the LKA because it's no stakes basically. Um, and so I think particularly for those of us who are boarded in multiple disciplines, uh, having the choice in each of those actually to me is very appealing. Um, I'm planning on doing uh, LKA for pulmonary and uh, take the tenure for critical care because I think I'll study better for critical care uh, that way. And I'll test those waters. And if I like the LKA, which is you know available for all of us starting, or for those of us whose certificates are due starting January of 2023, um, if I like that, I might just dabble back into internal medicine. So it's, it's interesting because I've been thinking a little bit about how I might do this myself. And I, I believe my practice will be similar to yours in as much as the things that I practice on a daily basis, for me, sleep, I'll probably do LKA for the things that I don't practice on a daily basis, such as pulmonary, I do some, but not a lot. It's probably preferable for me to do the 10 years cram, know it really well for the exam. And then I hate to say it, let sort of the knowledge atrophy over the intercurrent eight or nine years until I bone up again. It sounds, do, so um, I, again, we, I don't know, do we have any early data on, on, who's choosing LKA versus 10-year recertification. And I, after that, I want to ask a little bit about opportunities to jump if what you've decided that you've chosen poorly. So we don't have data for uh, pulmonary critical care because LKA in those disciplines is only going to start to be offered in January, uh, next month, basically. Uh, the response in the other disciplines has been very strongly positive for uh, the longitudinal knowledge assessment, um, uh, three quarters to four fifths of, of diplomats are choosing the LKA. Um, and I can understand that it's, uh, um, it's, it's so different than the, than the 10 year exam. Uh, you can think of it as low stakes, although you have to do it on an ongoing basis. So it's kind of an ongoing thing instead of I have to do it once every uh, 10 years, so there's a commitment there. But the uh, LKA offers you immediately feedback on a question you answer. Um, and so that there's this educational component uh, embedded in that. Um, you also get to respond whether you think the question is relevant to your practice, you know. Um, and I think as, as physicians and lifelong learners, we think of education and then assessment as a continuum, not as completely separate from each other. And so maybe the LK is a much more natural fit and you get 
a little something out of every question because you know if you got it right and if you got it wrong, you learned something. So I think the feedback from the other disciplines has been strongly positive. I mean, unexpectedly, overwhelmingly positive. But I think there will still always be people who want to take the long form exam for reasons such as you already articulated. So it's good that there is choice now. I just want to add to that that we're doing a, a lot of research, of course, on the LKA. It's the first year that it's been out there. So we have been surveying people who are involved in it. Um, I work with a team of qualitative researchers. They've been doing a lot of interviews. Um, one of our researchers has said that he has been hearing people talk about ABIM in ways he hasn't heard before. They're saying things like the LKA is really fun. I really look forward to getting each quarter's group of questions. So there's that aspect of it as well. I think there's also um, a piece to the LKA, which is different from the long form exam, even in um, maintenance of certification. For the long form exam, as, as you highlighted earlier, David, you can use up to date on the long form exam. In the LKA, you can use any resources that you would use in practice, short of another physician. You, you can't go to the guy down the hall and say, what's, what's the answer to this one? Um, and as Lynn said, um, we, we see this as important formative learning along the way, but I do wanna mention there is a summative component. Um, at the end of the five years, people will learn whether they were successful in terms of getting enough questions correct uh, we think that um, people who, along the way, beginning at the fifth quarter, they start getting feedback on how they're doing, um, how they're doing relative to the standard for passing. So if if you're taking it and you're, you're close to that passing standard, you might realize there are areas where you need to do some studying and turn to resources that are offered by CHEST and others. So, so Let's jump into feedback and and what constitutes passing. So so is how 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 is the board monitoring performance through this new LKA approach? What defines success and what happens to an individual who is not trending towards success? Is there an opportunity for them to off ramp to go back to the ten year sort of recertification process? So that's the um, the easy part of your question is the last part. Yeah, there is always a chance for someone to say. I tried the LKA and I think for me, this just isn't what I would want to do. I've been successful on the long form exam two, three times and you know, over my career, I think I'll just do that. So yes, people can make that choice to, as you say, take the off ramp. I am really proud of our research staff and our psychometric staff at ABIM and they are working very hard on looking at the performance on people in their first year and setting what the standard will be for the LKA, it will not be simply taking the long form exam and transferring that over. It's looking at this as a unique assessment. So actually I was gonna ask that, are, are, how are the questions, if at all, different uh, on the LKA versus the 10 year exam? Are they, are they constructed by the same committee with the same goals? Presumably the blueprint is the same, but is there a different methodology or expectation of knowledge from the learners or the examinees side? So the blueprint is exactly the same. It's the same content. Um, there is a separate committee writing questions and it's not because the questions are different, it's that they have to be more. So that um, uh, the committees for both the uh, traditional long form exam and the new um, LKA, 
go by the same rules. The questions are vetted in the same way with the same discipline uh, and rigor. Um, actually, I'm gonna take this moment to put a plug in and that if there's anybody out there who wants to participate in item writing, uh, please identify yourselves. We are always looking for people who are interested in the process. Uh, it is a commitment of time, but I can tell you it's a wonderful learning experience for the people who are writing the questions. Sorry, go David, ahead. I, th I think it's going to be fascinating for us to see how performance on questions may or may not be different for people on the LKA compared with a long form exam when there are questions that won't be identical because they are separate question pools, but could be similar. Um, is there a difference in um, how many people get a particular question in a, in a particular topic with a similar testing point right? One thing I, I should add when I was talking about our psychometricians and setting a new standard, if someone is not successful in meeting that standard at the end of five years, it doesn't mean they lose their certification immediately. They have a grace year in which they can take the long form exam and remain certified. So we are, you know, we built that in from the design of the program right from the get-go, recognizing that people learn differently and we want to have that option there for everybody. So even if the overwhelming majority, and if we look at the data two, three, four years from now, the overwhelming majority selected the LKA option, it does not sound like there are any near-term plans to sunset the 10-year recertification choice. No, I, I think there will likely always be people who want to research with that long form exam. Um, and right now that's what's being observed in uh, the other you know, specialties and in internal medicine. How does it look for someone? So Dr. Chinua, you mentioned earlier that a number of us in our specialty are board certified in three, if not four specialty and then subspecialties. And, and again, it's probably not unique, more increasingly cardiology and infectious disease folks are doing critical care. And so what does LKA look like for somebody who's maintaining three or four certifications? Do they have to do three or four times as many questions on a quarterly basis as somebody who is doing internal medicine alone? Uh, the short answer to that is yes. So that if you choose to to maintain four boards with LKA, you would do four times 120 questions each year. Um, and if you think that's fun, I guess it's just more fun. But I think that is also why some people may choose to do the 10 year uh, exam um, right now anyway, because that's a lot of questions to be answering. And even if your boards don't all come up in the same year, eventually they'll, they'll all overlap. And so if you choose LK as the recertification approach, you would be doing that for everything. We are asking people in our interviews this year, people who like you, David, may be eligible in multiple disciplines. And it seems like you know, the, the early findings are that how somebody feels about one LKA seems to be how they would feel about doing more. If they think it's fun, they're really enjoying it, they think it has reduced their overall professional stress level, they plan to add it on. Other people are saying, well, I do sleep all the time, pulmonary not so much, so I want to take advantage of that intensive board review course. That's certainly there for them. And that's why we have no plans to ever send down the long form exam. We recognize the different learning styles. And we also will have that as 
the means for someone to show us that they still are current in their knowledge in the field if they aren't successful in LKA. One of the things that uh, the ABIM sent me an email about, uh, I guess, a week or so ago, and I'm not sure it's been broadly announced, but uh, hopefully by the time this uh, <laughs> this airs, it will. And if not, we can, we can edit this question out, is the decision by ABIM to allow folks who are recertifying internal medicine to have an inpatient focused exam. Um, is that something that you can speak about and whether that's something that you may see offered in other specialties, for example, for Dr. Tanui, who's focused on thoracic oncology, whether she could take an exam at some point down the road, uh, a pulmonary with a predominant focus on oncology, if this is a successful pilot in IM. Lynn, would you like me to take that? Go ahead. So that decision, like all the decisions we make at ABIM, was data-driven. We learned from Medicare data that there were um, some internists, general internal medicine, as their only certification, who were doing pretty much exclusively hospital medicine. And then there was another group that was doing zero hospital medicine. We have had a program, focused practice of hospital medicine, but of those we identified through Medicare data as really being hospitalists, that was, that was the extent of their clinical work. Most of them were not enrolled in this focused practice of hospital medicine program. So we looked at what some options would be and thought, what if we offer two different types of exams in internal medicine? One, which is like the current one, which is a mix of outpatient medicine, it's majority outpatient medicine and some inpatient medicine and one that is written by the same committee that has been writing for the focused practice of hospital medicine program. But instead of having to be in the program, people can elect to take that exam. We did a lot of vetting in terms of talking to current participants in the focused practice program, to other diplomats, to societies that are involved and felt that this was the right decision that offered the most flexibility to our diplomats and um, would give them what they wanted in terms of an exam that addressed the knowledge that they use every day. We are looking at something similar to this in some other specialties. Depends on what the data tell us, whether that's something we would move forward with or not. I will say, as Dr. Tanui nice, nicely summarized earlier, uh, there's a component of the pulmonary exam every decade that I'm like, I don't need to study for this at all. It's part of my core practice. And there's a component that I do not recognize any of the new drugs that have come out in the last eight to eight to nine years. And I have to always recertify. So there would be an interesting shift, but I'll be curious to see the data once they come out on the, on the, on the specialized internal medicine recertification examination. Um, let me ask one last question on the LKA, and then I'd open it up for more of a broad discussion. Um, clearly, there are many more questions, or I would assume there are many more questions being written for LKA uh, than for the standard exam because a it, it the test security is probably a little less. You know, one of the, as a as a question writer for a different organization in the past, test security is very you know, important. And when questions go out into the wild, you lose security. And so you have to write more. So I would imagine that in that context, as uh, Lynn, you nicely advertised earlier, you are going to be looking for many more question writers to generate a lot more content. Um, so what skills are you looking for in such an individual? Do they just need to be a practicing clinician? Do they need any background in psychometrics or test writing? Can you speak a little bit more to how somebody might uh, feel better qualified to serve in that role? So you don't need any psychometric background, believe me. I didn't have any, 
Um, and my knowledge is pretty small still because there are people at ABIM whose job that is and they're experts in that area. Um, there is a learning curve to writing these questions um, because they're not like they're not like questions maybe you'd write even for a CME, um, you know, a CME article. They have to they have to follow a certain format so that they're that the results of the questions are reproducible and reliable. Um, and so that all you have to do is have interest. You know, if you bring uh, content expertise, that's great. But remember, the examination is is for the breadth of pulmonary medicine. And so we really need people who are practicing. Um, and that is one of the requirements for the exam committee that you be you be practicing pulmonary medicine. I don't know how you would know what was relevant if you if you weren't. And so then there's a training period. There's a mentorship actually of each new exam item writer. Um, and there is a very steep learning curve. Uh, it's a little bit humbling, uh, but it is actually a wonderful experience. And I'll just say again, an, an, an incredible learning experience because you learn about how people are tested and that there's a whole science behind that that's uh, very rigorous. Um, and you learn because you're writing and you have to anticipate, you know, why somebody might choose an answer you develop that's wrong. And so there shouldn't be trickery. It really should be very straightforward, but learning to write that kind of questions um, is a craft. And, and if you're committed to the process, I think learning that craft is actually very valuable. But because there are, as you point out, um, so many more items that need to be written, there is a need for people who are willing to do this work to write them. And so we are absolutely looking for new um, item writers. Uh, it's a collaborative process. Um, there is a you know governing um, group of, of experienced uh, exam item writers who govern uh, those who chair those committees. Um, it's fun. It's actually a great experience. I would really encourage other people to do it. I would just like to add to that that people who have been members of our exam committees over many years, like Lynn has said, and I actually started my relationship with ABIM on the internal medicine exam committee. People frequently say this was one of the best CME experiences I ever had, what I learned from writing the questions, what I learned from my colleagues as we discussed questions. So there's real professional value to it. You also make relationships with people over time mm -hmm. that um, can be very rich and meaningful. I wanna also mention that ABIM is um, prioritizing health equity um, in, our, uh, in, in all of our work really. And we are looking in particular for people with expertise in health equity in their field to join the item writing task force and to help us develop questions that address the disparities in health and healthcare that exist throughout internal medicine. Um, that's, that's a wonderful initiative. I'm glad to hear you're engaging in it. To, to serve, on our, uh, Lynn, I wanna second what you said about test writing and clearly Lorna, you as well. So a commercial pitch coming. Uh, Chest has a product with which some of you may be familiar called Seek. It's basically, 
relatively similar to writing a board question, other than we focus maybe a little bit more on the esoterica and the new stuff, something that really, I think we try to, you try to avoid the ABIM. You don't want the super newest stuff until it's been accepted and adapted coming out. We also write extended answers, but participating in Seek is like the most fun mm-hmm. thing ever. You sit around the table with, you know, 12 to 15 other super smart people. You learn a ton. It's a ton of work, but you learn a ton. So I, mm-hmm. uh, I second, if it's anything like writing seek, I don't doubt that, uh, I don't doubt that it's, a, that it's one of the best experiences you can have. If our members or folks out in the community who may not be chess members, but just are listening, want to learn more, connect with somebody from the American Board of Internal Medicine, what's the best way for them to go about doing it? If they have questions that are unanswered or things that aren't clearly navigable or findable on the website, what, what's the best way to, to, to get in touch with someone? So I would say if they have a specific question about their own situation, probably the best thing to do is email request at abim.org. We have a a wonderful team of of, um, customer service, customer experience staff who um, have great deep knowledge and can um, personalize and answer that way. We have a, a, a good website, I think. Uh, we just relaunched um, last night, um, updated it, and it's, it's very navigable. You can get a lot of information there. Um, so I would, I would start with that request at abim.org, and that will be either answered right away or triaged to the right people. I'd be happy to have people reach out directly to me at lynn at abim.org if they're interested in the item writing task force. So I'm closely connected with our test development group and can get that um, handed off to the right people because we are we are really eager. And one more thing I'd say about that it can be great for people who are early in a career or people who maybe have left academics and gone into um, a community practice, but would be interested in continuing some of these sorts of activities. It's also great for someone who maybe is at the later stages of a career and finds themselves with a little more time that might be available to share the wisdom that they have gained over you know, many years of a career would be a, a terrific thing to share with the profession. Before we wrap up, I want to open the floor to the two of you. You've been incredibly generous with your time and with your thoughts on this matter, uh, everything we've discussed so far. Is there anything that we have not yet discussed that you think would be of interest to the listening uh, audience? So I just have one thing, which is that Laura Evans, who is the um, chair of the Critical Care Medicine Board, and I wrote a commentary that's going to be published in CHESS pretty imminently explaining uh, the LKA, uh, including the cost structure and so forth. And so um, keep a lookout for that if you want something uh, in more detail um, about what it means for us in pulmonary and critical care medicine. I'd forgotten Lara had taken the new leadership role. I, I should have remembered because one of the only real downsides to serving in ABIM leadership is you can't participate in our board review courses anymore. So right. we've lost the both of you to active participation in, in our board review process. Right. Yeah. And that was fun too, you know. With that note, uh, I do want to thank you both, uh, Dr. Lorna Lin, Dr. Lin Tanue, for your time today. Um, and you've both uh, been very thoughtful and, and generous uh, with your explanations, and uh, we've provided the listening audience with some additional information and opportunities to reach out to the American Board of Internal Medicine. And with that, uh, we will we will uh, pull this to a close. So thanks again, and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, thanks you so too. much.